Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. Amidst the mince pies and parties, December is the month to reflect on the year that's just passed. And 2014 has certainly turned out to be a vintage year for literary prizes. So to celebrate and give you some ideas for Christmas shopping, this episode we'll be speaking to five authors who've been awarded the highest honours in their genre, including the winner of the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction, the Forward Prize for Poetry, the William Hill Sports Book of the Year, the Guardian First Book Award and the Man Booker Prize for Fiction. Helen MacDonald has had an extraordinary year. When H's for Hawk was published in August, not only did it receive rave reviews, it also became the surprise hardback non-fiction number one, beating the likes of Mary Berry and Hillary Clinton. It went on to win the Samuel Johnson Prize and has been shortlisted for the Costa Biography Award. It's been described as heartfelt, captivating, astounding and original and many fans are claiming H's for Hawk is a classic. It's very likely to be under the Christmas tree for many readers this year and for years to come. I'm joined by Helen now. Helen, welcome. I think you're going to begin by just reading us a little bit from the book and then just describing it to us and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Yes, I'll start with something from the very beginning of the book, which really sort of recounts the period just after my father died and I didn't really know what I was doing, and I started dreaming of goshawks. A few years earlier, I'd worked at a bird of prey centre right at the edge of England before it tips into Wales, a land of red earth, coal workings, wet forest and wild goshawks. This one, an adult female, had hit a fence while hunting and knocked herself out. Someone had picked her up, unconscious, put her in a cardboard box and brought her to us. Was anything broken? Was she damaged? We congregated in a darkened room with a box on the table and the boss reached her gloved left hand inside. A short scuffle and then out into the gloom her grey crest raised and her barred chest feathers puffed up into a meringue of aggression and fear came a huge old female goshawk. Old because her feet were gnarled and dusty, her eyes a deep, fiery orange, and she was beautiful. Beautiful like a granite cliff or a thundercloud. She completely filled the room. She had a massive back of sun-bleached grey feathers, was as muscled as a pit bull and intimidating as hell, even to staff who spent their days tending eagles. So wild and spooky and reptilian. Carefully we fanned her great broad wings as she snaked her neck round to stare at us, unblinking. We ran our fingers along the narrow bones of her wings and shoulders to check nothing was broken along bones light as pipes. We checked her collarbone, her thick scaled legs and toes, and inch-long black talons. Her vision seemed fine too. We held a finger in front of each hot eye in turn. Snap, snap, her beak went. Then she turned her head to stare right at me, locked her eyes on mine down her curved black beak, black pupils fixed. Then, right then, it occurred to me that this goshawk was bigger than me and more important and much, much older. A dinosaur pulled from the forest of Dean. There was a distinct prehistoric scent to her feathers. It caught in my nose, peppery, rusty as storm rain. Nothing was wrong with her at all. We took her outside and let her go. She opened her wings and in a second was gone. She disappeared over a hedge, slantwise into nothing. It was as if she'd found a rent in the damp Gloucestershire air and slipped through it. That was the moment I kept replaying over and over. That was the recurring dream. From then on, the hawk was inevitable. Thanks very much, Helen. So just describe to us the starting place for this book. Essentially, you suffered a great bereavement, sudden, unexpected, and you decided to deal with it in a very unusual way. I did decide to deal with it in a very unusual way. I decided to, yes, run from the world of humans after my dad died very suddenly and train a goshawk, which is not something I recommend anyone really do. It's it's certainly shouldn't be allowed on the national health. So the book traces following my dad's sudden death, this flight from the world, really, how I cut myself off from everyone, locked myself in a room with this wild, though captive-bred female goshawk I called Mabel, and took her through all the very ancient stages of her training until she flew free across Cambridgeshire hillsides, and I sort of followed her around. 
It was almost as though in the beginning parts of this book that you're following a sort of intuition that you think I need to do something. This is what I need to do, and yet you mix that with all, things that are almost quite comical, like for example the moment when you actually first meet Mabel. Um, which is quite a, a, a sort of unusual moment. It was so. I bought Mabel on the internet, which sounds a lot worse than it than it actually was. I did know, you know, this this sort of grapevine of, of falcon and hawk breeders. So I drove up to Scotland um, and I paced around on this quayside with a you know kind of can of caffeinated drink in one hand and kind of eight hundred pounds and and this poor chap turned up with two boxes and we we sort of got the hawks out and and in fact the hawk that I fell in love with wasn't the hawk I was supposed to have and it ended up with me pleading with this poor man on the quayside saying you know please can I have the first hawk please and I think I must have、um, looked quite scary at that point I was exhausted and my hair was all over the place and he sort of said yes so I I got the hawk I needed at that point and let's face it you were in a state weren't you in general you were just in a State wanting to do something, not knowing what it was, and just kind of trying to connect with this wild animal. I think following a sudden loss or a great bereavement, motives become very obscure. I found myself doing things out of compulsions,、um, not just this this getting the hawk, but sort of everything I did was was being run by part of me that wasn't really amenable to conscious examination.、Um, so yeah, so I found myself kind of with this this hawk in a darkened room, and then it was just you. And her. I mean, you did. You didn't cut yourself off entirely from other people. There were people, for example, you turned to for gospel advice.、Um, but you essentially, it, it was a relationship with her. It was. I pulled out the telephones.、Um, I had a very few friends that I saw. One of whom was Stuart, my goshawk guru, who has trained goshawks before and was a great help, both emotionally and practically with the hawk. But I became a hermit, and, and the training of a hawk is very odd. You know, you start off in these tiny dark spaces. Um, and you want them to be dark because the hawk's pretty much at that point frightened of everything, including you. And slowly, through a process of positive reinforcement, you kind of get the hawk to be used to you. And then you emerge from your house. And I found myself wandering around Cambridge、um, with a hawk on my fist to try and、uh, get her used to people. And of course, you know, Cambridge is a very eccentric place, but、um, not that eccentric. Not that eccentric. I did get some rather odd comments <laughs> and looks.、Um, small boys used to shout Harry Potter at me, which made me very cross because, of course, it was a goshawk, not an owl. But I found myself, even at that point, feeling very dislocated from the people and the world around me. You know, I was looking at the world through the eyes of a hawk, and the book really does trace this strange and, in some ways, quite shamanic transformation. Really, I, I, I didn't want to be me anymore. I wanted to be this hawk. It was all the things I wanted to be, and there's a great cost to that. Although it was a very exhilarating and, and beautiful experience to watch her fly and feel that I was flying with her,、um, I started to get very, very depressed. And the book sort of traces this sense that I. I tried to keep my grief at bay by becoming something else, but in fact, the grief bled back through, and、um, I became wild and very sad. This makes the book sound miserable, but I hope it isn't. You know, there are jokes in it as well. There are a lot of jokes, and also there is this. I mean, we should say first that you do have form. It's not as if it were, for example, me deciding to train a goshawk. I mean, you you knew birds, you knew falconry. It had been with you for a very, very long time, hadn't it? Yes, I just rolled my eyes there, thinking of myself as a small child. I mean, <laughs> I really was an absolute nightmare. I don't know how my parents bedroom put up plastered, with me. Bedroom plastered, right? Bedroom plastered with hawk posters. My poor mum. I remember one vividly one morning when she was kind of. I think She was cleaning the bathroom floor. I think it was the bathroom, or maybe the kitchen. And I was standing there, telling her all about how goshawks are very popular falconry birds in the continent. And I, d- I don't know how she put up with me. You know, I just was—I was just this sort of monomaniac about hawks. So I did. I, I worked with hawks for many years and became later an academic historian. And when my dad died, you know, I, I went back to being that small child again. I wanted to be with hawks. You wanted to be a child, and you also wanted to be a bird. You wanted to fly. You wanted to escape and get away from people and be this sort of solitary, self-sufficient kind of person, I suppose, or entity. And I, and I, I wanted to sort of. Disappear from the. I didn't want to remember the past. I didn't want to live in the future.、Mm. And, and birds, of course, live in the present. So that was perfect. This book is not just about you, and it's not just about Mabel, though, is it? There's a whole other strand to the book. Just tell us a bit about that. There is. It's a kind of miniature biography of the writer T. H. White,、um, who's best known for *The Sword in the Stone* and *The Once and Future King*,、um, great retellings of the Arthurian legends. He was a very, very sad man, and it's really kind of struggling with his sexuality, struggling with all sorts of 
terrible insecurities related to his upbringing. He had an awful childhood in India in a public school. And um, he tried to train a goshawk too in 1936, and he made a terrible job of it um, because he didn't know what he was doing. And, and like me, the hawk wasn't just a hawk. It was tied up with all sorts of his own kind of demons. So th- my book is a kind of conversation with his, and there's a kind of imaginative biography of him in there, but I did a lot of research in various libraries and read all his um, unpublished journals and notebooks, and they were very, very moving. There were, there were bits where I would read um, his writing on the page of his journals and see spots of tears. He'd obviously been weeping as he wrote. So he's quite a haunting presence. I'm going to ask you a question that's probably impossible to answer, really. Why do you think this book has been so successful with readers? Obviously, it's won a lot of prizes, but it's touched a lot of people too. Do you know why that is? I've been astonished. One of the most moving things that's ever happened to me is meeting people who've read the book and talking about their own losses, their own bereavements, their own difficulties and how animals and landscapes and nature are tangled up in how they deal with those things. There, there was a woman the other day who tweeted me and said, this is a book for anyone who's wanted to escape from their life ever. And I think we all want to do that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, goshawks and hawks in general really are, here's the small child talking again, but they really are pretty incredible animals. And I think, you know, if I've got across what they're like on the page and made that alive and live for people, then, you know, that that's also a, you know, one of those things that I hope is, is making the book fly, really. It's, you know, goshawks are just fascinating and beautiful things. I would sort of add to this, uh, at the risk of kind of embarrassing you, that I think it's one of the most honest books I've ever read. It has kind of terribly uh, unflinching looks at yourself. You are not pulling back uh, from looking at yourself. Um, you're not trying to make things easy. And obviously it was a very difficult book to write, I imagine. It was a very strange process, partly because I remember that year very, 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 very brightly. I think something strange happens to one's recall after loss, and I remember it as if it were yesterday, which is very strange. But, of course, I was a very different person then. This was seven years ago, and trying to write the book or writing the book and having to go back into that place was a bit like having to dive underwater. I'd have to come up for air and you know, have a cup of tea and, and sort of do some deep breaths and then go back to it. But... I tried to make it honest. I mean, I started writing it and for a while I kind of held back a bit. I didn't want it to be kind of, you know, a bit over the top. But I realised I just had to be brutally honest about how it felt. It wasn't going to be written otherwise. It it wouldn't work. And it felt at times like a a kind of natural history of grief, just as it's a natural Mm. history of birds or or, or flight. You know, just just the importance is to to look at it unflinchingly and, and record what it was like. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Liz Berry was born in 1980 in the Black Country and now lives in Birmingham. Her debut collection, also called Black Country, was published earlier this year and was selected as a Poetry Book Society recommendation, Observer Poetry Book of the Month and won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. As Jeremy Paxman, chair of the judges, said of it, Liz Berry makes you look at the world differently. Her work is that rare thing a collection that leaves you feeling full of real optimism and hope. I asked her to read a couple of poems for us before catching up with her. Bird. When I became a bird, Lord, nothing could stop me. The air feathered as I knelt by my open window for the charm. Black on gold, last star of the dawn. Singing, they came. Throstles, Jenny Wrens, Jack Squallers swinging their anchors through the clouds. My heart beat like a wing. I shed my nightdress to the drowning arms of the dark. My shoes to the sun's widening mouth. Bed. I found my bones hollowing to slender pipes. My shoulder blades tufting down. I spread my flight-greedy arms to watch my fingers dueling like ten hummingbirds, my feet callousing to knuckly claws, as my lips calcified to a hooked kiss. Silence. Then an exultation of larks filled the clouds, 
and in my mother's voice chorused, Take flight, chick, go far for the winter. So I left girlhood behind me like a blue egg and stepped off from the window ledge. How light I was as they lifted me up from Wren's nest, bore me over the edgelands of concrete and coal. I saw my grandmother waving up from Effold, looped the infant school and factory, let the zephyrs carry me out to the coast. Lunas, I flew, battered and tuneless. The storms turned me inside out like a fury. There wasn't one small part of my body didn't bawl. Until I felt it. At last, the rush of squall thrilling my wing. And I knew my voice was no longer words, but song. Black upon black. I raised my throat to the wind. And this is what I sang. This next poem's called Homing. I grew up in Dudley in the Black Country, an area sadly with a much maligned accent. But it's an accent and a dialect that I think is so beautiful and so many people who I love and have loved have spoken in that way that it seemed to me something worth treasuring and celebrating. So this poem's really a love poem of the Black Country dialect. For years... You kept your accent in a box beneath the bed. The lock crusted shut by hours of elocution. How now, brown cow? The teacher's ruler across your legs. We heard it escape sometimes. A guttural oh on the phone to your sister. Saft or blot to a taxi driver. Unpacking your bags from his boot. I loved its thick drawl. Jeez, that rang. Clearing your house. The only thing I wanted was that box. Jemmy Dalpen. To let years of lost words spill out. Bibble. Fiddle. Tie. Wum. Veils ferrous as nails, consonants you could lick the coal from. I wanted to swallow them all. The pits, railways, factories thunking and clanging, the night shift. The red brick back-to-back you were born in. I wanted to forge your voice in my mouth. A blacksmith's furnace. Shout it from the roofs. Send your words, like pigeons, fluttering for home. Thanks, Liz. That was wonderful. And I wonder if I could start by asking you a sort of very obvious question. Mm. The, the collection's called Black Country. You described there how important the accent, the dialect, the vocabulary was to you. How much is it the inspiration behind this collection? I think to a great degree, the Black Country as a place is the inspiration behind the book. Most of the poems are written when I was living away from the area and I found that increasingly it started to haunt me. The places, the landscape, the people I'd loved and grown up with, the language, the dialect. And also it's really amazing theme of folk stories and, and poetry and music that seemed to just bubble through my writing and became more and more fascinated by it. And every time I returned home, I'd find I wanted to dig out more and collect more and gather more, and that started to, to feed into the poems, which I suppose then became sort of love letters to and from the place. Do you think it's, it's interesting, do you think you had to be away from it to do that? Was it something that really only began to kind of embed itself in you when you were away? I think for me, yes. I think as a poet, it can be a really useful position to be in, to be just outside of somewhere, to be able to look back on it through a little telescope from afar and see what's there. I think sometimes when you live in a place and amongst people and you speak the same language as everybody else, 
you don't really appreciate what's special or beautiful or unique about it. Sometimes you have to step back to be able to recognise it for the treasure that it is. And just uh, something that you said a little bit earlier on too, that the accent you think is very unfairly maligned. Um, do you know why that is and, and what, on what sort of effects it's had? I don't know why it is, um, but it certainly is a thing and it's been a thing for mm. such a long time. And it's been really interesting doing readings for the book and travelling around readers' groups and libraries in the West Midlands, um, how passionately people feel about their dialect and their accent, and I suppose how wronged they feel that it's got such a terrible reputation. Because really in mainstream media, and I suppose mainstream literature, you very rarely hear positive representations of black country or Birmingham speakers. It's always associated with really negative things. I suppose part of my passion in the book to suppose transform some perceptions and so people the accent and the dialect in a new light as this beautiful, unusual, remarkable thing. It's very kind of fascinating to be so um, connected and committed to a kind of particular place. But do you also does it does it make you think? How do I go beyond this? What do I? Will I go beyond it? Will I become the poet of a certain place, or will I spread my wings, so to speak? I think that's a really interesting question and interesting challenge. I think your first book, somehow you write everything that's gone before up until this point. And I suppose really it's, for me, an exploration of childhood, of growing up, mm-hmm. and also that dilemma that lots of us face of whether we stay or whether we go, and what happens when you do go, and in my case, what happens when you go back. So that's the next stage of life for me now, that It'll be interesting to write about. My first son was born almost a year ago and that's obviously changed my life completely. So I wonder if the next poems that I write will be about that transition. Tell me about why poetry. You know, there was obviously something that you wanted to express. Clearly language is is an important medium so you perhaps weren't going to do it, you know, in, in music or in art. But why poetry specifically? I've always loved poetry, ever since I was a little girl. I'm really lucky that I come from a family where both my parents love poems, they love music, they love stories. So from when we were really tiny, we used to hear lots of poems and read lots of poems and write poems together. So it's always been something that that I found great joy in. And for me, there's a certain kind of magic about poetry that I think it's almost impossible to put your finger on. But there's something about its power to unsettle you and move you and excite you. And it always strikes me that at times when we feel great emotion in our lives, when we lose someone, when someone's born, when we get married, when we're having a dark time, people often want to hear a poem or read a poem as it seems that's the only thing that will quite touch the feeling. Something to do with kind of distilling emotion Mm. and making it very sort of concentrated and clear, I suppose. Or articulating for people something that they're not quite sure how to articulate for themselves at times. Just tell me how it felt when you when you won this award. It's such a wonderful start to a writing career, isn't it? It's really a fantastic set of prizes and such a kind of um, validation of what you tried to do. How did it feel to you? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think the words I used at the time were, what a beautiful surprise. (laughs) And that's exactly how it felt. It it was a complete surprise, but it just felt wonderful, like a wonderful validation of the work and just a lovely, lovely, exciting thing to happen. Thank you so much for talking to us. We wish you all the best of luck with your next collection and with everything else that you're doing. Thank Thank you you ever so much, Liz. Thanks. Colin Barrett's Young Skins is a collection of stories set in the fictional Irish town of Glambeg, a town, as Colin writes, where the youth have the run of the place. It won the Frank O'Connor Story Prize, the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature and, most recently, the Guardian First Book Award. Here, Colin Barrett himself reads us an extract. My town is nowhere you have been, but you know it's ilk. A roundabout off a national road, an industrial estate, a five-screen cineplex, a century of pubs packed inside the square mile of the town's limits. The Atlantic is near, the gnarled jawbone of the coastline with its gull-infested promontories is near, summer evenings and in the manure-scented pastures of the satellite parishes, 
the Zen bovines lift their heads to contemplate the V8 howls of the boy racers tearing through the back lanes. I'm young and the young do not number many here, but it is fair to say we have the run of the place. It is Sunday, the weekend, that three-day festival of attrition is done. Sunday is the day of purgation and redress of tenderized brain cases and seesawing stomachs and hollow pledges to never ever get that twisted again. A day you are happy to see slip by before it ever really gets going. It's well after 8 p.m., though still bright out the warm light infused with that happy kind of melancholy that attends a July evening in the West. I'm sitting with Tug Cunef at a table in the alfresco smoking area of Dockery's pub. The smoking area is a narrow concrete courtyard to the building's rear overlooking the town river. Midges tickle our scalps. A candy-striped canvas awning extends on cantilevers, and now and then the awning ripples, sail-like, in the breeze. Ours is the table nearest to the river, and it is soothing to listen to the radiostatic bristle of the rushing water. There are a dozen other people out here. We know most of them, at least to see, and they all know us. Tog is one many prefer to keep a tidy birth of. He's called Manchild behind his back. He is big and he is unpredictable, prone to fits of rage and temper tantrums. There are the pills he takes to keep himself on an even keel, but now and then in a fit of contrariness or out of a sense of misguided self-confidence, he will abandon the medication. Sometimes he'll admit to the abandonment and sell me on his surplus of pills, but other times he'll say nothing. Tug is odd, for he was bred in a family warped by grief and was himself a manner of ghostine. Tug's real name is Brendan, but he was a second Cunef boy named Brendan. The mother had a firstborn a couple of years before Tug, but that sliver of a child died at 13 months old. And then came Tug. He was four when they first took him out to Glambay Cemetery to lay flowers by a lonely blue slab with his own name etched upon it in fissured guilt. I am hungover. Tug is not. He does not drink, which is a good thing. I'm nursing a pint, downing it so slowly it's already lost its fizz. How's the head, Jimmy? Tug calls. He is in a good mood, a good, 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 but edgy, edgy, edgy mood. Not so hot, I admit. Was it Quillinans Friday? Quillinans, I say. Then shepherds and fandangos. The same story, Saturday. The ride, he inquires. Marlene Davy. Gosh, Tug says. Gosh, gosh, gosh. He worries his molars with his tongue. Tug is 24 to my 25, though he looks 10 years older. As far as I'm aware, his virginity remains unshed. Back in our school days, the convent girls and all their mammies were goo-goo-eyed over Tug. He was a handsome lad all up through his teens, but by 16 had begun to pile on the pounds and the pounds stuck. The weight gives him a lugubrious air. The management and conveyance of his bulk is an involved and sapping enterprise. He keeps his bonds shaved tight, wears dark baggy clothing, modeling his appearance after Brando in Apocalypse Now. Me and Marlene go back a ways, I say. Which is true. Marlene is the nearest thing I've had to a steady girlfriend. And if we've never quite been on, we've never quite been off either. Even after Marco Cullen got her pregnant last year, she had the baby just after Christmas, a boy, and named him David for her dear departed dad. I ran into her in Fandangles on the Friday. There was the usual crowd, micro-minied girls on spike heels, explosively frizzed hair, spray tan, mahogany, décolletage, there were donkey-necked boys in button-down tablecloth patterned shirts, farmers' sons who wear their shirt sleeves rolled up past the elbows, as if at any moment they might be called upon to pull a calf out of a cow's steaming nethers. Fandango's was a hot box, neon strobed and pulsed, dry ice fumed in the air, libidinal bass juddered the windowless walls. I was sinking shots at the bar with Desi Roberts when she crackled in my periphery. She'd already seen me and was swanning over. We exchanged bashful, familiar smiles. Smiles and knew exactly what was coming. There was the comfort of routine in our routine, but also the mystery of that routine's persistence. Marlene lives with her consenting, pragmatic mother, Angie, 
who even at three in the morning was up and sat at the kitchen table placidly leafing through a TV listings magazine and supping a cold tea. She was happy to see me, Marlene's ma. She filled the kettle and asked if we wanted a cuppa. We demurred. She told us we, David, were sound asleep upstairs and be sure not to wake him. In Marlene's bedroom, my belly flopped onto the cool duvet. Her childhood menagerie of stuffed animals was piled at the end of the bed. I was trying to recall the names of each button-eyed piglet and bunny as Marlene tugged my trousers down over my calves. Boopsy, Winnie, Flaps, Rupert. Now my calves are paltry things, measly lengths of pale, undefined muscle all scribbled with curly black hairs. Their enduring ugliness startles me any time I glimpse them in a mirror. But Marlene began to knead them gently with her fingers. She worked her way up to my thighs and hissed, flip over. You have to appreciate a girl who can encounter a pair of calves as unpleasant as mine and still want to get up on you. She's a nice one, Tug says. A fly lands on his head and mills in the stubble. Tug seems not to notice. I want to reach out and smack it. That she is, I say instead, and take another sup of my pint. And just like that, Marlene appears. This happens frequently in this town. Incant a body's name and lo, they appear. She comes through the double doors in cut-off jeans, sunglasses pushed up into her red ringlets, zestfully licking an ice cream cone. She's wearing a canary yellow belly top, the better to show off her stomach, a robosized back to greyhound tautness since the baby. A sundial tattoo circumscribes her navel. Her eyes are verdigris, and if it wasn't for the acne scars worming across her cheeks, She'd be a beauty, my Marlene. The Man Booker Prize is arguably the world's biggest international literary award, with the power to transform the lives of the authors who win it. This year, Tasmanian author Richard Flanagan took the prize with his critically acclaimed book The Narrow Road to the Deep North, a savagely beautiful novel about the cruelty of war and the impossibility of love. Chair of this year's judges, A.C. Grayling, said it was a magnificent novel of love and war. Some years... Very good books win the Man Booker Prize, but this year a masterpiece has won it. I caught up with Richard before he won the prize to ask him about how he wrote The Narrow Road to the Deep North. Decades later, Jimmy Bigelow would insist that his kids always fold their clothes so, fold ever outwards. He would open the drawers of the chest of drawers in their suburban weatherboard home in Hobart to make sure they were safe and the fold was out. He would never hit or smack them for not folding their clothes with the fold out. He would beg and plead. He would order and demand and in the end, exasperated, he would refold and restack their clothes himself as they stood by, nervously waiting. He would feel some nameless terror that was beyond him to explain. A confusion they too would carry with them for the rest of their lives that was both love and fear, that was beyond the drawers opening and closing, beyond their father's frustration and mumbling. He knew they couldn't understand, but could they not see? How could they not know? It should have been so obvious what had to be understood. You could never know when everything might change, a mood, a decision a blanket, a life. They knew none of it. They only knew that, whatever they did, he would never hurt them. At the very worst, he would throw them over his knee, bring his hand up, and then hold it there, hovering over their bottom. Sometimes they would feel him shaking through his knees, and his thighs. They would steal a look upwards and see his hand trembling, his eyes watery. How could they know that their father was desperately trying to protect them from the unexpected smash of a rifle butt into their soft child's cheek, to warn them of what horrors this hard world had ready for the unwary, the unwise, 
and the unprepared. To prepare them for all those things for which no one could ever be readied. They knew only this one thing, that he would never hurt them. As his body trembled back and forth through time, they knew what he meant when he said, Rightio, and suddenly threw them off his lap and back onto their feet. Averting his eyes, he would wave them away with an extended hand. That's it, Rightio. Just, just put the fold out next time. Out. Always out. Rightio. And they would run outside into the sun. Perhaps he wondered. He didn't make the time or space he should for love. He fitted it in and it flitted away. Perhaps he somehow chose why he couldn't say the predictable lines of work over love's wild circling, the folding of a blanket over the unfolding of locked arms. But sometimes it was just there, staring out an open window to see little Jody look up and wave to him with the biggest smile He was shocked to see love playing in a backyard of brown grass under a sprinkler's diamond spill. Shocked to know he had been lucky enough to live and know it, to love and be loved. And he would watch his children playing outside in the sun. Ashamed. Amazed. It was always sunny. I'm delighted to be joined now by Richard Flanagan, hot from his victory at the Man Booker Prize. (laughs) Richard, I know people have been asking you since that moment at the Guildhall how you feel. Do you even know yet? Um, Well, no, I don't, because at the moment they stop asking me and I have time to actually think, I'm sure I'll be able to give you an answer. I, um, I, I was being photographed late yesterday afternoon by a... Guardian photographer who became disturbed by the fact that one of my eyelids kept dropping so much from exhaustion that uh, it looked like I had a palsy in the uh, the final image. But she said um, she'd shot several Booker winners and uh, always completely shell shocked. And um, it, it is such an astonishing thing. And uh, and then you, but the strangeness of it is, is from the moment it's announced, you're taken away, and this is. This is the third day of solid media, and other than sleep, you don't do much else. So um, you, you really have no time to absorb it and comprehend what it means. You, you're just um, in this strange sort of early outsimic state where you constantly repeat yourself and discover yet again you've won the booker, and it's a joy. It is a joy, though, yeah. isn't it? Oh, look, it's it's the most extraordinary honour. That's why. And it has such consequence, and that's you, you know that. I, I guess it's like being landed on the top of some great mountain peak, um, and you know you, you you've gone to a different place. But all around this summit are clouds, and until those clouds clear, you don't know what that different place is. But you, you are fully aware that you no longer you, you are no longer standing in the same place you had been previously as a writer. You are by no means a debut writer. This is your sixth book, isn't it? And I guess um, in this country, you're probably best known for Gould's Book of Fish, an extraordinarily avant-garde work of fiction that was printed in different coloured inks. It was it was so complex. Um, but this is a very special book. The, the Narrow Road to the Deep North is a very, very special book to you, isn't it? Look, they're all very special books to me, and um, and each one um, really is a crack diary. Um, I feel of myself for the time I write it. Um, this one, uh, simply because there's been more publicity, people are more familiar with the story behind it, um, which is that of um, my father, who was a Japanese prisoner of war, who was a survivor of the death railway. 
and um, who I guess imbued his children not simply with the stories he told, which were um, which were humorous but tinged with a certain uh, compassion and pity, but who also imbued us with, I think, a, a strange and um, a slightly mysterious sensibility about the world that was somewhat at odds with what with the mores of the, the the world I grew up in, it was an idea of um, never seeing anybody as less than anybody else. It was an idea of love, of um, friendship. It was uh, it was also, I think, an idea of pity of the, the the terrible sadness the world can sometimes lead good people into. And so it's it's been in all these countless interviews I've done, it's often been assumed that um, I've simply retold my father's stories. But it's very far from that. But for one thing, it would be a very poor book if I did, if it was just some sort of fictionalised biography. Um, for another, that wasn't what I was seeking to do. I had these... I, I gr I'd grown up as this child of the death railway, and I guess at a certain time I realised something was some strange thing was swelling inside me and it was slowly starting to choke me. And unless I could find a way of writing it, of divining it, I really wouldn't be able to uh, to write another book. And so uh, it comes from my father, but it was also something that had become me. And in the end, um, you know, if I was to write another book, I had to write this one. And it was a very difficult process that took me uh, 12 years, it took me five other novels that I wrote and then each of which I destroyed. You destroyed completely, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I, I deleted the files from the hard drive, I burnt the manuscripts um, and uh, started again because I, I, I think when you... It's no good writing something and then thinking I can salvage bits and pieces of it and put it in a new draft because you just... Um, you just end up with this great weight of dead, inanimate words that are just dragging down your fresh insights, your, your, the, the, the possibilities of both language and meaning that you're coming to with the dead things that didn't work and you, you just poison what you're trying to do. The, the struggle was to find a form, I think, that was true to this darkness that I was trying to write about. And in the end, I, I understood that it had to be a love story. And it had to be a, a love story because I think uh, if you wish to speak of dark things, you, you you in the end have to find some hope. And that's not out of sentimentality. It's not... Uh, for melodramatic effect, it is because um, hope is the essence of who we are. We, without hope, we're, we're dead men. Um, not for nothing, we're the most despised people in the the lager, the the ones uh, the concentration camp inmates called the the Muslimana, the ones who had lost all hope, um, because that, that that is beyond reproach. And so too is art that only represents darkness and presents darkness because in the end we understand in our deepest recesses that that's untrue to our understanding of ourselves and of life itself. To have hope, though, that's not false or sentimental. You need it, a form of story. And love really is the highest expression of hope. To love someone is to discover eternity in a moment that dies immediately afterwards. In story, uh, that means that love stories are so often stories of death. We don't generally experience love as death, but we understand something of it will die. And, and so love stories again and again are stories of death. War stories are the stories of death par excellence. So... War illuminates love, but love provides the light you need if you wish to walk into that shadow of war. 
So I needed both aspects to be able to create something that might hold for the reader. And, and once I understood that, and once I had the central image of the novel, which comes from a story my parents were very fond of about a, a Latvian man who lived in our village where I was born in Tasmania, who had got swept up in those great movements of armies and peoples in Eastern Europe during the war. He'd ended up getting back to his village at war's end to find that his wife, well, his village was raised and his wife, he was told, dead. And he refused to believe that and he searched that apocalyptic wasteland of Eastern Europe, the displaced persons camps, the Red Cross centres and so on, for two years. But in the end, he, um, he had to admit that she was indeed dead. And he, um, he immigrated to Australia, finally ended up in this little town where I was born and uh, married an Australian woman and had a family. In 1957, he, he uh, went to Sydney and he was walking down a crowded street and he saw his Latvian wife walking toward him with a child on either hand. And he realised at that point that he had to decide, he had but a few moments to decide whether he would acknowledge her or whether he would walk on. And growing up, I always thought this was the most beautiful story about love, about its, um, about its power, about its terrible cost, the way it exists beyond morality and the things it demands of us and, and the mystery at the centre of it. Uh, and um, I'd, I'd actually been thinking about doing this trying to find a way of writing this prisoner of war story back when I finished Gould's Book of Fish that you spoke of and I was walking across Sydney Harbour Bridge on a late afternoon the most beautiful um, place in the world and the light was skipping on the, the harbour water below and I remembered this story of the Latvian man and his wife and um, I thought imagine what it would be like to be a prisoner of war many, of you, many years later who survived all that horror, and they'd be walking across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which has a wide and beautiful walkway, and he saw this woman who was the love of his life walking towards him, who he'd always thought dead since the war. And I, I rushed back to a pub in the Rocks, which is this very old district next to the bridge, and, um, and in a pub I borrowed a biro off a barman, and I wrote out that chapter on, on beer coasters. Interestingly, I then wrote this, I, I tried to write this prisoner of war story all sorts of other different ways, um, these other five novels, but it wasn't until I realised it had to be a love story, dug out those beer coasters and returned to this idea of the love story that I was finally able to finish the novel. I've talked far too long. So, some, But something did, did survive and that was the beer coasters, that was the bit of the story that you carried through all those years and ends up in this book? The imperishable and incorruptible <laughs> beer coaster. Well, where would literature be without the Alice? <laughs> Can you even begin to think of, of, uh, of where you might be, be going next? I mean, on holiday, I hope. But, uh, but after that, what, what will this do for, for your work in the future? Do you know yet? No, I've no idea. I mean, everyone says that the booker will change your life. And, um, but uh, for me, the joy of writing is writing. And um, the, nothing gives me greater pleasure than waking in the morning and la knowing I'm allowed to go back to the table and once more play with words and, you know, occasionally write one or two good sentences. Um, there's, there, there's something I find... It's, it's a way for me to divine the world and, um, and it brings me pleasure, um, great, great pleasure... And so um, it's that I want to get back to, and um, I'll ride this strange tsunami um, for a time yet, I'm sure. But um, uh, then I'll, um, you know, I'll wade back into the the beach, and um, I'll walk up through the dunes, and I'll go back home to the table and um, start again. You have all our congratulations and many thanks for joining us. Thank you, Alex. One of the last prizes of the year to be awarded is November's William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award, the most prestigious books prize in the sporting calendar. 
Yellow Jersey Press at Vintage are the proud publisher of four previous winners of the award, and this year we're thrilled to see that number rise to five when Australian journalist Anna Crean's Night Games, Sex, Power and a Journey to the Dark Heart of Sport was awarded the prize. Described by the judges as a painstaking, intelligent, but above all open-minded examination of an immensely complicated area, Night Games follows the controversial rape trial of an Aussie rules player, focusing on what Crean, only the second woman to take the award following Laura Hillenbrand for Seabiscuit in 2001, describes as the grey area of sexual consent. William Hill's spokesperson Graham Sharp said, Despite the challenging nature of its subject matter, Anna Crean's book is balanced yet fearless and as compelling and involving as any previous winner. Anna was in London to collect her award and she came into the podcast studio to discuss night games with her editor, Matt Phillips. Have you reached your verdict? The judge now inquires. The foreman of the jury nods and stands up. The 23-year-old in the dock is answering to six counts one of indecent assault and the rest rape. Not guilty. Justin buckles and lets out a huge, racking sob. His gasps seem to heave over his cordoned-off area, over the wooden banister to his family. They let out a choking sound. The jury foreman trails off, looking at the man in the dock, the document in his hand shaking. The judge nods at him to continue, and with each verdict of not guilty, the subbing grows louder, the family now holding themselves, arms crossed over one another, as if forming a kind of dinghy on a rough sea and taking the waves of Justin's gasping as their own. The jury members shift in their seats, fiddling with their hands, with the rings on their fingers, stealing wide-eyed looks at the dock. It is as if they are seeing Justin for the first time. With my fingers, I try to push my own tears back into the seams of my eyes. I squeeze my nails into my palms, etching the skin for distraction. The solicitor for the state, bringing to the court the charges initiated by Sarah Wesley, the complainant, sits facing the court. She exchanges a long, knowing look with the policewoman in the front row behind the Crown Prosecutor. As the jury is thanked and dismissed, I stare at my notepad. Now they know the difference between what is said in popular media and reality, the judge says of the jurors to the lawyers. We all try to ignore the whirlpool of emotion in the corner of the room. After the judge departs, the reporters stand awkwardly at the door, waiting for the family to settle, to sort themselves out and start leaving so they can ask for a quote or two. I stand with them, but I don't really belong. I know this family now. I've sat with them outside for the past three weeks, waiting with them in that dead space. I put my pencil and notebook away, take a deep breath and cross over the empty seats into this flooding family on the defendant's side. His grandmother envelops me in a hug and I think, well, there goes my objectivity and I'm struggling with this. It's as if I'm inside out. The journalists at the door, their faces are unreadable. They have cool exteriors. I admire their poise, their unmuddied positions, absolved in their detachment. It's all backwards for me. Because despite the verdict, I still don't know who was guilty and who was innocent. And yet here I am, hugging the grandmother in the defendant's corner. And that's a problem, don't you think? Anna, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Um, Your book, Night Games, is a very complex book with lots of complex issues, um, which we're going to discuss a few of those today. Um, It's set around a rape case in uh, Australia between a girl and a minor league football player. And mysteriously, there are some major leaguers involved, some superstar celebrities who, uh, when it comes to the court case, have mysteriously been are absent. They don't seem to be facing the same trial as this minor league player. But instead, the minor leaguer, Justin, he's called in your book, is being defended by their lawyer. And this is where we enter and start following this case. The case, well, the original... Uh Details of the case emerged after a grand final in Melbourne between two football teams, uh, Collingwood and St Kilda. And the grand final was played twice because the first one reached a draw. Everyone had to wait another week for a rematch and Collingwood won. Then the next morning, stories started to emerge um, on the radio about two Collingwood players being uh, questioned by police over a 
allegation of, I, I guess, gang rape um, in a townhouse in um, in a Melbourne. Everyone was expecting it to involve two very high-profile footballers and then suddenly uh, the man who was charged was a footballer but in um, a lower league and his the allegation against him was rape but it wasn't in the townhouse where the some of the complaints had been made. It was in an alleyway next um, down the road from the townhouse. Initially, a lot of media interest uh, dropped out after that happened because they were like, oh, well, the two top footballers aren't involved anymore. We don't care. Whereas I hung around because what I found to be particularly odd was that this lesser-known footballer was being represented by the main football clubs, Collingwood, their lawyer. And I thought that was very odd. I was wondering why that lawyer was there representing this guy if their two high-profile players were no longer involved in the case. Um, And to me, it struck me as club wanting to control the narrative and to make sure that their players didn't get dropped into anything or um, yeah, weren't weren't marred by the initial the initial complaints which were against the um, their players in the townhouse. By the end of it, it was very simplified, which I had a problem with. Um, by the end of it, the jury were simply told about a rape that occurred in an alleyway and what had happened in the townhouse involving the complainant and the two high-profile footballers and a couple of other uh, young men was completely erased from the night. Uh, the jury never heard about that, which I found really... I really struggled to understand how that worked because um, by the time the complainant got to the second scenario, which saw um, going to trial, she'd already been through quite a lot. The very key issues for me weren't aired in court and weren't talked about in the media, which was how did one lone girl find herself going back to a house with a young man and find herself suddenly in a bedroom with multiple men and what happened to her mind and not just her body but also her mind in that process which ended up her finding herself in an alleyway with another person um, and him being charged with rape. So the key issues as as far as I saw them were not being talked about. I mean what you do is you use this case almost as a springboard to mm. start pulling out like a greater thread, as it were, mm. which is, is this a problem that exists in sports culture? And obviously uh, the book is set in Australia, mm. um, but in England we've recently been going through something, observing a case that would fit right into this book, the Chad mm. Evans case. Is it, is it something that you found was a wider problem? Oh, definitely. It resonated all over the world. Um, And it didn't have to just be football. It could be ice hockey. It's a major problem in ice hockey hockey in Canada. I think what these players and what these young men don't understand is they don't understand how they look or how they appear. They don't understand that they appear as a strong, menacing force when they appear in numbers. But at the same time, I automatically want to rethink that because on the they know they do that's what they do on the field they're a team and when they all stand strong together they are a menacing strong intimidating force so why don't they understand that that's what they are if they all turn up in a bedroom together but it's not just a huge problem in football it's a huge problem in sort of these need say in the military as well it's even wherever there's a culture that is you know just been largely male um, and has, has run unchecked for so long because sport is just so worshipped and so widely celebrated and so idolised and there has been a real sense of, um, oh, let boys be boys or boys can do whatever they want, a sense of entitlement that's just really avalanched. And also the, the pranks. The pranks. The prank side that you talk about, which is mm. very revealing and I think anyone who's ever, you know, pranked someone else yeah. knows, has a sense from what you've written of, of what it feels like both to be the, the pranker and the pranky, if you mm. know, to be on the receiving end. Yeah. Uh, and you get, I suppose, a glimpse into, if you escalated that many yeah. times, where you might be, where these sports teams are, where the pranks are seemingly out of control. So the last thing I wanted to do, be was that sort of shrill voice. And, you know, also because I do have a sense of fun. I like pranks. Mm. I've always liked pranks. Uh, it's just that they became um, quite sinister 
that as I started to research these pranks that the footballers played on each other and on unsuspecting victims who came into their sort of into their thrall, is the pranks just got darker and darker and darker. So the pranks that I liked would be, you know, at footy training they'll fill up one of their mates' cars with sawdust. Mm. You know, that's for me. I just love it's completely stupid. It's simple. You do it for the, his, the look on his face when he goes to his car. Then, you know, change the scenario to it being, you know, midnight and it's, it's night, everyone's a bit wonky with drink um, and the prank becomes you take a girl back to your hotel room and you don't tell her that five of the other mates, your teammates, are in the bathroom. Or then uh, you, up the, you up the ante, you have sex with her, you say you're going to go to the toilet and instead of coming back out into the room, you send your mate out. So the pranks just get, to them, funnier and funnier. Um, to me, darker and darker and darker. One of the things that is, uh, which I loved about the book, actually, was that finally it felt... I think a lot of these things are very uncomfortable to talk about. Mm. But finally it felt like someone had, in a kind of objective and intelligent and nuanced fashion discussed some very complex and sensitive um, issues that I think most people find difficult to talk about. We talked about the sort of furore that surrounds these cases. When mm. in the, the Chad Evans case recently, Judy Finnegan expressed, seemed to express uh, mm. an English celebrity yeah. uh, some sympathy for Evans's plight. Mm. Um, the, the backlash was, was huge. And in mm. fact, her daughter was... You know, almost ironically, her daughter was threatened with her life. <laughs> um, is part of the problem? Is it? It's such an emotional subject. Is is everybody shouting and no one listening? Is that part of the problem? Everyone's got these uh, these positions, and they don't feel they can yeah. adjust them, even in a, the shades of grey that you touch on. There's the politically correct sort of feminist side of the story, which will shut down any conversation that sways from their mandate, which basically means that no one's going to get any smarter anytime sooner. And I felt really sorry for Judy Finnegan Finnegan when she got shut down. I mean, yeah, of course, she said what she said clumsily. Of course she did. But technically, she actually had a point. Yes, all rape is bad. She wasn't saying that, you know, not all rape is bad, but there are different types of rape and there are grades of rape and technically she has she made a really good point and the judge judges actually embody exactly what she said by their sentencing they they take into what kind of rape occurred in order to decide on the sentence all these kind of debates and these um, discussions are shut down from the word go you can't you're not allowed to say anything and yeah, and I there was a few back in Australia after I wrote about this grey zone, um, you know, the difficulty that many might um, come across in discerning consent. consent. I was There was a few um, articles written and a bit of social media sort of condemning me for even contemplating a grey zone. And there was one particular article that said that I was promoting violence against women in talking about that, which is just absurd, and it was, and a lot of the, a lot of these articles were also very loaded with jargon and um, academic terminology, and you could tell that someone had you know written many many theses and actually never ventured out of their office into the party scene, because um, on the other hand, I got that response, but on the other hand, I was getting responses from football coaches from community clubs saying, "Thank you for writing this book." Um, I've given it to all the boys on my team, they're 16, and you've written it in a way that they're not going to feel like you're yelling at them. You've written it in a way that you understand their position, you understand their confusion, you understand that midnight on Saturday night is not an easy place to navigate. And so, you know, it was, a couple, it was sort of emails and phone calls like that which really just made me want to throw it at the people who were telling me I was promoting violence against women because I don't really know how they're helping the situation by shutting down debate and discussion and shutting down empathy for men and boys who find themselves in these really, really tricky situations. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really sad scenario when someone like Judy gets shut down 
over venturing to open up a can of worms which needs to be opened. Absolutely. I've got one final question, if I may, um, which I asked Matt as well before you. It's about role models. Hmm. Should sportsmen be role models? Can they be? Are they? In a way, should they or shouldn't they is not really is, is not really up for discussion. They are, whether we like it or not. If I don't think they should be, that's not really going to change anything because they are. They're role models. People look up to them. People look up to them more than they look up to someone who's, you know, cured uh, cancer or something like that. They, they, they are role models. Boys worship them, you know, women do as well, which is why the discussion about Chet Evans returning to the Games is so important because he's a role model. Whether he likes it or not, whether his club likes it or not, whether the league likes it or not, it's just how it is. So whatever standard they take is a really important stand because it's not just them, it's not just their game, it's not just winning or losing. It's, you know, hundreds and thousands of boys, families, girls um, who are taking that lead. Anna Crean, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. If you've missed any episodes or would like to listen again, then you can subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. All episodes are also available at our website, www.vintage-books.co.uk. Until next time, goodbye and happy Christmas.